uh, these young ladies are all students at Northwestern College. And I must uh, tell you that the reputation of the college was at stake yesterday at the basketball game. The uh, coach, Joe Smith, asked me if I would come and be an honorary coach for the day. He needed a little extra help against these uh, Dutch guys from Dort College. And so he asked me to uh, sit on the bench with him. I told the team before the, the, uh, the game that it's one thing to have a trustee sitting on the bench, it's another thing to have an angel in the outfield. And they did not have that advantage. And so they um, kindly let me assist them that way. But I had one mission for the game, and that one mission was don't get a technical foul called on you. And I must say that I was able to accomplish at least that part of the mission. Today we want to talk about uh, the mission of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the salvation of his people. He also accomplished his mission. And to do that, we're going to turn to Psalm 8 in our Bibles. Psalm 8. When Christ came in his first advent, he came to save us from our sin. In order to be the Savior of sinful humans, he had to become one of us humans himself. Although from all eternity he was the Son of God, the creator of humanity who knew us, knew our rebellion, nonetheless it was necessary that he identify with us as the Son of Man. His union with the fallen race of Adam had to be real. It had to be genetic. It had to be historical. Psalm 8 was written by David, but it is a psalm that expresses something of this authentication of his identification with the human race. I invite you to follow along in your Bible as I read Psalm 8. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth, who has displayed thy splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes thou hast established strength because of thine adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider the, the heavens, thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man? And David uses a term there that means what is weak, insignificant, mortal man? that thou dost take thought of him, and the Son of Man, that thou dost care for him. Yet thou hast made him a little lower than Elohim. Now my translation puts that a little lower than God. Yours may also. It might also read a little lower than the angels, because the word Elohim is translated both ways. And as we'll see in a moment, it is translated angels in the New Testament and dost crown him with glory and majesty. Thou dost make him to rule over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. Now I am particularly interested in those verses that uh, begin with verse 4 talking about man. 
And I invite you to turn with me now into the New Testament to the book of Hebrews where we have this authenticated as a messianic prophecy and message. I will begin reading in verse 5 of Hebrews 2 where it says, For he, that is God, did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, and by the way it was David, <laughs> saying, What is man that thou rememberest him, or the son of man that thou art concerned about him? Thou hast made him for a little while, or thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor, and hast appointed him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. Now the writer continues, For in subjecting all things to him, that is to man, he left nothing that is not subject to him, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him, that is man, humanity. But we do see him, who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, that is, Messiah, the Son, is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing thy praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And be again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Now since then the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Man was created by God and crowned with glory and majesty by being made in the image of God and then by being made the Creator's regent over creation. Everything was put under the rule of mankind, male and female. But something dreadful happened. God's regents rebelled against Him, lost their high privilege, and were judged with death. That is a familiar story to those of you who know the Bible. But it is against that backdrop that we consider the truth of our text, that Christ identified with sinners in order to save us. Christ identified with sinners in order to save us. David ponders the frailty of mankind, his mortality, his weakness, his insignificance. And yet, the Creator loved him. And the Creator loves the fallen race of Adam 
He declares the value of the human race to himself. And he speaks here of restoration to a glory and a privilege that was lost long ago. In order to effect this salvation, this world to come, Christ, the Son, had to act. He had to do something. He had to be our deliverer. He had to identify with us in our plight. He had to become one with us. And that, it seems to me, is what David is telling us in this wonderful uh, song that we have written. That Messiah identified first with us in our rank. In our rank. That is, in our order of creation. Because he tells us that man was created a little lower than God. Or as the Greek version of the Old Testament puts it, a little lower than the angels. And it is that Greek version that the writer of Hebrews follows by the inspiration of God's Spirit. There are two dimensions of created reality the Bible refers to. There's the invisible dimension and the visible. In the former, God created the angels. In the latter, he created inanimate matter and animals. But above the animals and below the angels, in a rank that bridges both of these dimensions, the visible and the invisible, he created man. Man who is both physical and spiritual, who is both material and immaterial. Man is unique in God's creation. And what it tells us here is that the Creator, the Christ, the one who is above all of creation, himself entered into creation at our ranking. He did not come as an animal. He did not come as an angel. He came as a man. He did so that he could identify, identify with us in a way in which he could redeem us and rescue us. Although he's the creator of the entire universe, he identifies with us in a unique way. With no other level of creation does he identify himself as he identifies himself with us. He identified with us in our rank. That was his first action. Secondly, he identified with us in our fallenness. Man has fallen from his place of majesty and glory, the regency that God had given to him, fallen into sin and rebellion against God. It is into our fallenness that Jesus came, although he himself knew no sin. He was born without a sinful nature that is inherited by all of the rest of Adam's race, male and female. But he himself did not have such a nature. And he committed no sin. He was and is holy. And yet he partook of our mortal flesh and blood. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that he experienced sufferings. Sufferings that are associated with fallenness. And the writer of Hebrews, rather the writer of Philippians, the Apostle Paul tells us 
that his identification with us in our fallenness was so complete that he ultimately went to the cross to identify with us in our sin. There, he says, he became sin for us. He, the holy and pure Son of God, became sin for us in the eyes of God so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him by faith. And so in order to identify with us, He identified with us in our rank, He identified with us in our fallenness, and third, He identified with us in our death. Being free of sin, he needed to pay no penalty for it. And yet he knew our bondage and identified with our condemnation. As the writer of Hebrews says, he tasted death for everyone. The word taste there is an idiom. It's an expression that means to experience it to the full. It doesn't mean that he sipped it only. It means that he drank it in. He absorbed our death fully in himself so that he now is able to deliver us from slavery to the fear of death and from the one who had the power of death, he says, that is the devil. We have a wonderful Savior, a Savior who came into the world and identified with us in our ranking, in our fallenness, in our death. He identified with us so that he might lift us above to his state of glory. He came below that he might raise us above. He identified with us in our sin that we might be identified with him in his righteousness. No wonder then the writer of Hebrews says this was by the grace of God. This action that he took was nothing that we deserved. It was nothing that we had done so that he felt obligated to us. He just loved us. And because of his great love, he was willing to identify with us that he might save us from what we deserved. And one day the redeemed will be those that will be crowned with glory and honor as one with Jesus Christ. One day those who trust in him, who place their faith in him, will be those who will inherit the new world, the new order that is coming, the new heaven and the new earth. It is a marvelous thing what he did on our behalf. I was reading recently Philip Yancey's book, The Jesus I Never Knew, in which he spends a chapter reviewing the birth of Jesus. And he talks about Christmas from the angel's viewpoint, and there he reminds us of the familiar fantasy that J.B. Phillips wrote regarding this matter of Christmas from the angel's viewpoint. Phillips talked about a senior angel who is showing a very young angel around the splendors of the universe. He takes them to see, takes this young angel to see the whirling galaxies and the blazing suns 
and they flit across the infinite distances of space until at last they enter one particular galaxy of 500 billion stars. And there they come to one of those stars, and around that star is whirling one little planet. The senior angel pointed to that small planet, and he said, I want you to watch that one particularly. Well, it looks very small and rather dirty to me, said the little angel. What's so special about that one? The senior angel explained that although that dirty planet didn't seem so impressive, it was nonetheless the visited planet. The young angel said, do you mean that our great and glorious prince went down in person to this fifth-rate little ball? Why should he do something like that? The little angel's face wrinkled in disgust. Do you mean to tell me that he stooped so low as to become one of those creeping, crawling creatures on that floating ball? I do said the senior angel, and I don't think he would like you to call them creeping, crawling creatures in that tone of voice. For strange as it may seem to us, he loves them. He went down to visit them, to lift them up, to become like him. The little angel looked blank. Such a thought was almost beyond his comprehension. Yancey goes on to say, it was almost beyond my comprehension too, and yet I accept that this notion is the key to understanding Christmas and is, in fact, the touchstone of my faith. Friend, if you're going to understand Christmas, you must understand what the angel learned. That the great and glorious prince who flung this universe into existence came here identified with us by becoming flesh and blood, became one with us, that he might taste our death and then set us free to become like him and to share with him majesty and glory in the world that is to come. He identified with us. A closing question. It is this. Do you identify with him in your world? He came to your world to identify with you and was not ashamed. In the world in which you live, are you willing to be identified with him. The story is told of a professor in a university in California a number of years ago now, an atheist, who taught philosophy and who spent a whole semester proving to his freshman students in a required class that God could not exist. And his, his arguments went on class session after class session after class session. And on the last day of the class, it was his little trick to say, now, do any of you still believe in God? to see if any of the 300 students would stand. 
And if any would dare stand, he would say, well, if there is a God, then he will be able to keep this chalk in my hand from breaking when I drop it on the floor. He would break it and the chalk would smash. And any who dared say they believed in God would simply sit down. And he would smirk. A particular young man was a Christian knew what was coming. He prayed all semester. God would give him the courage to identify with Jesus on that day when that question would come. The day came and so did the question. The young man stood up and the professor was astonished that someone would dare stand and say he still believed in God after this semester of ranting and raving against God. And he said, young man, you're a fool. For if there were a God, he would be able to keep this chalk from breaking when I drop it on the floor. And with that, it slipped out of his hand, rolled down his sleeve, down his pant leg, across his shoe, and then across the floor without breaking. The professor looked at the chalk. He looked at the student and ran out of the classroom. The student came forward and shared his faith with his 300 fellow students unashamed to identify with Jesus Christ. And that's why I think that this question is so profound. Are we willing to identify with Jesus in our world? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we come to this communion table, it is a table of identification. For here we're reminded of your flesh and blood body in which you identified with us that we might be saved. We thank you for the gift of salvation offered freely to all who will come in faith. And today, Lord Jesus, thanking you for the gift, we also determine in our hearts to be willing to identify with you in our world. fortify and encourage our spirits even as we partake of this bread reminding us of your identification with us. Amen.
This represents his flesh. Love was when God became a man. And he offered himself for our sins. Let us eat it in gratitude. And for the cup, our Lord Jesus, we offer thanks, remembering that your body was like ours. And the blood was the life of it. And it was that innocent blood that was shed for our redemption. Thank you. Amen.
our sins were so heinous, the result of them so disruptive to what God desired in fellowship with man, that the man, Christ Jesus, bled to death on a cross as a sacrifice, willingly, because he loves you and me. And he tells us that this cup reminds us of his blood. He identified with us. Let's drink of it. We have remembered our Lord's death. Let us rejoice that he came below, that he might raise us above, that he became one of the sons of men, he became the Son of Man, that we might become the children of God and reign with him. He entered into our lost estate that he might raise us to the paradise above. He came into our fallenness that he might restore us to the majesty and the glory that God intended for man to have. And one day we will enter into that world that is to come. No wonder the writer of Hebrews says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? We shall not escape. And I hope today that you know this salvation and this Savior, that you have trusted him, that you have placed your faith in him alone for your salvation. And that having done that, you are gladly willing to identify with him in your world. Let's stand together, please, for closing prayer as we go. One of my favorite choruses has uh, these words to it. Sing Alleluia to the Lord. Would you sing it with me? Sing Alleluia to the Lord. Sing Alleluia to 